Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are joined by electro-pop singer Peaches. The button-pushing artist joins us for a conversation and a live performance. And later on, we'll review the new album from actress and singer Charlotte Gainsbourg. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Yes, Greg, a bad moon has risen. After a year of quiet and secretive deliberations behind closed doors, while everyone from uh, angry politicians to consumer advocates to Bruce Springsteen were shouting in opposition outside, the Department of Justice has approved the merger between the giant national concert promoters, Live Nation, and the monopolistic Ticketmaster. We began talking about this story last year, and it is, quite frankly, one of the biggest stories you or I have ever covered in our combined 40 or 50 years on this pop music beat. Why does it matter to people that these two big concert entities are getting together to form an even bigger concert entity? Frankly, it will remake the concert industry in America, and it will shut out the small promoters who are left. The business, as many businesses in America are, department stores like Walmart, you know, computer software like Microsoft, it's been shrinking, Mm -hmm. and it's been harder and harder for the small businesses to stay in business. There are only a handful of independent regional promoters left, cities like New York and New Orleans and Chicago that are lucky enough to still have competition where several promoters are vying to to put on shows, are going to have a harder time staying in business when this giant promoter now owns this monopolistic ticket broker is the only way to say it. Yes, the Department of Justice did extract a few concessions before they gave the green light to this historic merger that, as you said, is going to change the music industry forever. They did force Ticketmaster to license some of its ticketing software to one of its competitors and to divest some of its ticketing assets to another competitor. It also said that, you know, hey, we're going to be watching you because a lot of the competitors that they now have are going to have to use 
still use Ticketmaster to sell tickets. So in other words, Ticketmaster is going to be getting some of the profits from the sales of the tickets to their competitors, in addition to having vital information about exactly who's buying their competitors' tickets. So the Justice Department is basically saying, we're going to police that, this activity, although it's unclear, Jim, exactly how they're going to be able to do that. I read through the dozens of pages of legal filings from the Justice Department in announcing this ruling on the merger, and there is one paragraph that says, we'll trust you not to to stamp out your competition. One paragraph. Mm -hmm. If you're a small promoter trying to do business against the big guys, certainly that's not going to be of much solace to you. In the mid-90s, the Department of Justice first investigated Ticketmaster and its monopolistic practices. Pearl Jam was positioned as the crusaders who asked for that investigation. Not really the truth. There was an investigation underway, Mm -hmm. and the Department of Justice went to several artists like Pearl Jam and Aerosmith and R.E.M., and they wound up testifying on Capitol Hill. During the Clinton years, they spent about a year and a half looking at this company and then ultimately decided, no, not a monopoly. Yeah. Nothing happened during the Bush years. And now comes this ruling under the Obama administration, which was seen as the first big test of the new administration on antitrust issues. Okay, we know Clinton and Bush okayed the ever-growing expansion of companies like Microsoft, but, but where do you stand, President Obama? It's shocking to many people in the concert industry and also economic analysts that the department okayed this. You know, we're in Chicago, and we're longtime reporters. It's hard not to be a little skeptical about how politics work. The board of directors of Ticketmaster included a fellow named Julius Janikowski, Mm. who was the Harvard classmate of President Obama and uh, a member of his transition team, resigned his Ticketmaster board position to become chairman of the FCC. The Live Nation board of directors includes one Ari Emanuel, who is the Hollywood super agent whose brother, Rahm Emanuel, is the president's chief of staff. It really seems, A, very, very friendly to big business, this ruling, and B, as if Ticketmaster and Live Nation had a lot of friends in the White House. Well, it, it also flies in the face of the 1948 U.S. Supreme Court ruling you know, against Paramount Pictures in a historic antitrust case. In that case, Paramount Pictures and all the Hollywood movie studios really owned movie theaters, and they funneled all of their films to the movie theaters that they owned. Shutting out independent films. Exactly. The Supreme Court ruled that this is blatantly antitrust and forced them to divest of those theaters. What was most shocking to me about this particular Department of Justice decision, Jim, was that they did not force Ticketmaster and Live Nation, this new entity, to divest themselves from this management company that is also part of this huge mega corporation. This management company that was originally part of Ticketmaster, overseeing artists like Neil Diamond, Van Halen, Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, Jimmy Buffett, Christina Aguilera, Stevie Nicks, Aerosmith, Steely Dan, Journey, Guns N' Roses, on and on, one of the most powerful management companies in the world. So not only do they own most of the big concert venues in North America, about 140, not only do they sell most of the tickets to those venues, they also own the artists that are going to be playing in those venues. That is blatantly uh, contradictory to what, what, what the Supreme Court held in that 1948 ruling. And that is why so many people were shocked that from where this started, a year ago, when Rapino, the head of Live Nation, and Irving Azoff, the head of Ticketmaster, testified before both Senate and congressional committees and were verbally eviscerated. From the left and the right. Exactly. For 
claiming that this was somehow going to benefit consumers and small businesses by making it a more beneficial to do concert business in the United States for everybody, they laughed in their face. Yeah. And a year later, we have this as the new reality. So one, consumers are really behind the eight ball because you know ticket prices have only gone up in the last decade with these two entities dominating the concert industry. Nobody says ticket prices are coming down. In fact, they'll probably go up yet again. Service fees, the same thing. And a lot of small business is a lot of independent promoters are basically saying it's going to be incredibly difficult for us to compete against this mega monster right now. Tommy, can you hear me? Can you feel me near you? Tommy, can you see me? Can I help to cheer you? Gray, hearing is an important issue over here at Sound Opinions. You and I listen for a living, some people would say, not very closely. But a couple of years ago, we did a story about a, uh, a study in 2008 indicating that increased use of iPods, wearing those earbuds in your ears all the time at ever-increasing volumes, and going to shows, concerts that get louder and louder all the time, not to mention environmental noise that surrounds us, was leading to increased rate of hearing loss. We're going to have a generation that was going to be hearing less than any that came before. In fact, we had some guests on that talked about the importance of wearing ear protection at, at loud concerts mm-hmm. and of not keeping those earbuds in 23 hours a day. Now there's a new study out of the uh, University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health that indicates that things are, are, are more complicated than that. Yes, things are getting louder all the time, iPods, concerts, the environment, yet people are retaining more of their hearing. The baby boomers, that their generation, have a 31% less hearing loss than their parents. And according to the study, it was previously expected that 66 million Americans would be hearing impaired by 2030, But the new findings suggest that the number is going to be more like 51 million. Obviously, you want to protect your ears, but it's not quite as dire as we were led to believe that everybody is going deaf. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a song called More from the fourth studio album, I Feel Cream, from the artist Peaches. She started out with the less grandiose name of Meryl Nisker, born and raised in Toronto, kicked around that music scene in the 90s, doing a mixture of acoustic folk, avant-garde jazz, a little bit of noise experimentation. Uh, She finally emerged as a solo artist in the last decade, going by the name of Peaches, and created this persona that pushed all the buttons and feminism, sexuality, politics, a series of controversial studio albums based in electropop, but also bridging into performance art in a live performance in particular. We were recently joined by Peaches and her Berlin-based band Sweet Machine in the studio. Shit. 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 
Welcome to Sound Opinions, Peaches. Thank you. Take us through a little of the history, Peaches, of, of how you came to develop this persona and to do this recording career after your earlier incarnation, after a brief career as a school teacher, right? Well, let's just say that everything I did was by accident. I grew up not having any inkling that I could be a musician at all. There's no history of music in my family. So I started music later on. I needed a job. I got a boring job in a daycare center. It was so boring that I organized kids into groups and I was learning to play acoustic guitar. So Hmm. I would play songs for them and make up stories. And um, the teachers were really um, thrilled with it. And I ended up teaching teachers how to teach kids. And I ended up teaching classes all over Toronto where I lived. And I did that for 10 years. And at the same time, I was developing my own music. So I started with folk music, which I uh, never wanted to be a folk musician, but I played acoustic guitar. My friend did too, and we both played in a club, and we got a weekly gig for a year and a half. So we ended up becoming songwriters and playing for like 250 people every week. Mm. And then after a year and a half, I was like, I guess I'm a musician, and I just tried to expand on that because I didn't want to just play folk music. So I started doing more like avant jazz and strange singing and trying to stretch my voice and then um, picked up electric guitar and dabbled in instruments and got together with Gonzalez, a a friend of mine, and Maki and another girl, Sticky, and the the four of us came together with this band that I can't say the name of on radio. (laughs) And and we decided to throw away everything we, we were doing in music and just be very spontaneous and actually very sexual also, and also only write together in the room. That changed, I think, all our ideas about music. And we gave all ourselves nicknames, if you will, and I gave myself Peaches after Nina Simone's song, Mm. because how she uh, says Peaches at the end of the song for women. Yeah. She Mm -hmm. says it so passionately, so I wanted her to be singing it to me. So I didn't think she'd change the song to... My name is Meryl. (laughs) But thus was born Peaches. Mm -hmm. I'm awfully bitter these days Because my parents were slaves What do they call me? My name is Peaches You're, you're sort of dabbling in all these different styles of music. Was music important to you growing up? Yeah, music was definitely important to me. And, what, um, what kind of artists, though, were speaking to you as a, as a kid growing up? I had an bro- older brother and older sister and um, parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I was really into Donna Summer with my dad and really into the Ramones and the Kinks with my brother. My sister was more into the real 80s pop and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and I listen to classic rock on the radio all the time. So, I mean... I can hear all those ingredients yeah. coming into what we're... Well, Greg and I want to tell the story of when we first uh, saw you on stage. But, <laughs> but let's get a song first. Okay. What are you going to play? We're going to play Take You On. Cool. Take it on. I take you 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 on.
was peaches with take you on live on sound opinions we'll have more with peaches coming up on sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media and later on we'll review the new beck produced album by charlotte gainsbourg
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. The song you're hearing is Rock Show by our guest this week, Peaches. The singer and performance artist was born Meryl Nisker, but adopted the alter ego Peaches for her 2000 album, Peaches of Peaches. Both Greg and I saw her perform as Peaches for the first time during that tour, and even a decade later, it is hard to forget. Rock Show! Peaches, the first time Mr. Cotton and I saw you perform was that infamous show in the fall of 2000 at the Park West opening for Elastica. Yes, our Gonzalez and I opening <laughs> yes. for Elastica, our worst show ever. Infamous because the Park West is a venue that's been around since Capone, and to this day they still talk about that as the single worst show that they've ever hosted, <laughs> which is really a great accomplishment. Yeah. But you had this weird thing where you were four shows into the tour, if I recall, uh-huh. is the story, yeah. and you had decided you were not going to play the same song at any two shows. That's right. And so by the fourth show, you know, after playing an hour every night, so we were on the fourth hour of material. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically improvisation in, yeah. in, a, in a very non-improvisational environment. And, and this is very, very early on in the, the solo incarnation. I mean, you'd, you'd basically decided to do this more electronic thing more of a, a one-woman band type of concept. Yeah, I, I was playing um, an MC-505 that I would call my MC-5, mm-hmm. just a small machine, before using a computer. And, and that sort of inspired, did that inspire the Peaches persona and then the idea to go to the one-man band? What came first? Well, um, as I was explaining before, I, everything happened by accident. People moved away, and I still wanted to play music, so I got that machine and decided to um, be my own band. So I was like, okay, now I'm the bass player. I'm playing the bass lines. Okay, now I'm the drummer. I just figured then I wouldn't have to rely on anybody. Well, and you wrote, you wrote, produced, and basically played the first two albums on your own, toured on your own that way. Elastica was just the first of uh, many unique environments that I saw you live in. I think you were opening for people like Manson along the way, and I think Nine Inch Nails was somewhere in there too. I mean, these, these were not situations that you would normally find one woman with a beatbox on stage trying to entertain 5,000 people. Well, yeah, more like 10,000. And when I got to um, Poland to open for Bjork with my iPod instead of my uh, (laughs) thing, they wouldn't even let me in. I didn't have any entourage. I just had me and my iPod, and I said, I'm here to open for Bjork. And they said, I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, that that takes... uh, I can't even use the term on the radio either. Let's get all Yiddish on you and say chutzpah. Yeah, there you go. It takes chutzpah. You must have been scared. Um, no, I th- maybe I was just stupid or mm-hmm. very idealistic, but I just thought it was a cool thing to do and um, to make an impact. I just thought that my strongest asset was myself as a performer, and um, I just thought I could convince people that that was enough. Yeah, well, obviously there's people who loved it, and, and yet, how do you deal with, th- there was certainly certain amount of hostility every night, too. There was, there was a lot of hostility, yeah. a lot of spitting, <laughs> hawking loogies at me, and I like that. I don't like loogies, no. But mm. I like that dichotomy of people hating you and people loving you, because they're actually, there's, there's some kind of response, and to me, that's what art and music should evoke, you know? Mm-hmm. That was why rock and roll was created. There's a danger element, and, and I think that Yes, of course, you can enjoy music, but also the power of, of rock and roll as an attitude, and I wanted to, to keep that alive. 
Oh, it, it absolutely was electrifying. You know, I, a friend of mine had convinced me to go to the Teachers of Peaches, although I'd seen that show. Well, it was the worst show ever. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. And then I heard it, and then I, I got it. I mean, that album was brilliant. It was your big breakthrough. I was like, this woman is fearlessly taking the, the sexual braggadocio of the gangster rappers, and she's turning it completely around. You like it when I turn your back. Give you no slack, the slap attack. You like it when we leave parts on, when we're getting it on, on and on and on, on and on and on, on and on I think I had told you at that point I had played it for my nine-year-old daughter. And you were like, really? And I said, yeah, my God, I want her to hear Peaches more than Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera or any of this, because this is what I think, uh, you know, a smart, empowered woman is today. And, um, I think you thought I was a little. How's your child now? How's your child now? <laughs> she hates me now, but it's okay. You know, she should. She's thirteen. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And she's probably secretly listening to Peaches. I'm um, sure. But you know, it's funny too because uh, people always tell me that they've lost their virginity to my music, or that, and and a lot of mothers told me that they they've given birth to my my songs. Wow. So uh, and it was that, a short labor. <laughs> Probably. We went a lot quicker, I bet. <laughs> That's right. Well, how did you view the way women presented themselves sexually in music? I mean, obviously, some of what you do is a response to that, it seems. Yeah, it's definitely a response to um, popular culture and the images of women. And that's how it all started out, you know, trying to find the missing link between the continuation of Riot Girl, but not just rehashing that sound and incorporating new electronic sounds that I loved that I just thought were made by geeks that didn't really put their personality into it. So I just wanted to fuse that stuff together. And, and it's interesting, too, because you mentioned Riot Girl, and, and it seemed to be this grand awakening, like, oh, girls can talk about this stuff and, and be as frank as guys and, and present themselves in a way that's not, not presenting themselves as sex objects and yet talk about sexuality. And then it went away. It seemed like it, it had a five-year window there, and it, then it just stopped happening. Yeah. What has been the reaction to your stuff as far as that has been, to continue that dialogue? Do you feel there is a genuine dialogue uh, in music about this? Or, you know, when you turn on MTV or whatever, do you still are you still depressed about you know, sure, you'll the state of the way women that. are presented? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you'll always be depressed at the way the, the state of women are presented. But um, I hope guys get depressed about the way... They're presented, too, and I'm hoping for that really soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time. It Centuries time overdue. Yeah. Peaches, would you give us another tune? Tell us what you're going to play. Let's try Mud. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm all, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. <clears throat> Try 
to be giving it the full extreme Right now guy, no one Cry so you're feeling like a drama queen I'm down on one's so numb Champagne, damn shame What you gonna do when they drag your name? Get cardio, start to run Stand in the thrill of all immunity The fix, it's quick for some Slam to the thrilling of the scrutiny Too late for fate, it comes Grant to be filling all the infamy Admit and quit, it's done Loved up, tough luck What you gonna do now, yeah? Mud by Peaches and Sweet Machine. That's from her uh, latest album, I Feel Cream. That was great. Thank you. It's very exciting to have you here, Peaches. You, we were talking about the vision of women in, in culture and how it never changes. The vision of Peaches, though, in popular <laughs> culture has changed. I mean, you it's have true. had rock giants, Joan Jett and Iggy Pop working with you. You've had people like Pink and Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears singing your praises. And it must be said, and I'm a critic and I can say it, Lady Gaga ripping off your entire persona, watering it down. <laughs> uh, so are you getting like residuals from She's being, the, you know, like the pop culture influence of 2009? No, but I've always said that, um, you know, the mainstream should move closer to me. I'm not going to move closer to it. And, <laughs> yeah, and it did. <laughs> I Feel Cream, though, is, is a different album for you. I, I think it's, uh, I've loved each of the recordings. I was starting to feel, okay, I know what I'm going to get from Peaches. And yet, I, I when I first heard I Feel Cream, I was like, wow. For one, your vocals leaped forward. And that was, you know, concentrating on the singing was something that you, you hadn't done before on a recording. And you really did on this one. That's right. <laughs> was it not? Now, it was I never. part of my plan. We were chatting about this. You actually have this project idea to do all of Jesus Christ Superstar, and you were going to sing every role. Is that right? No, I am going to do it. Actually, Gonzalez is going to play all the, the music on piano, and I'm going to sing. I'm going to be everybody. Oh now, if God. you can go and do everything from the Pharisees baritone yes. to Mary Magdalene's. Uh, I mean, that's you got to sing to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm still got to work on those uh, baritone. <laughs> 
<laughs> I might have to get an like an Octavator or oh, something. Yeah, the Jesus must die. That's the best. The Pharisees are the must coolest. Die. Yeah. I've always been able to sing. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I've that was my um, foray into music. That's how I knew music from singing. So when I made Peaches albums, I didn't want to focus on singing because it wasn't what I wanted to um, present. And I thought that if I did sing, then the message and also the the style and the directness would have been lost because people would have gone, oh, this song's, a- oh, look, she can sing. Mm. Well, it's interesting, like a track like Lose You, I, I know that there have been aspects of that in the previous records, but the vulnerability there is mm-hmm. pretty profound. It's like, oh, this is kind of, you can almost hear this on the radio or something, you know? <laughs> just a case of all of this stuff has been stored up over the years and you were just waiting for the opportunity to sort of, okay, I'm going to showcase this side of myself. But yep. Yeah. So here's the moment, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, Do you think you pulled it off? I mean, you're, you're giving us one word answers, but you look, you got a smile on your face. You, yeah, I don't, I don't, you're saying it all. What do I need to say? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're so verbose. the critics talk. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> Well, Usually I have to do all the talking, explaining myself, and it's really nice to have it come back to me, so thank you. Right. Well, we, we do our best. Um, in 2006, the Impeach My Bush record, that was another step forward. You, the previous two records had been with the groove box, primarily you and, and, and that machine, and here you were trying to meld the worlds of disco and, and rock in, I think, uh, an interesting way. It's always struck me as kind of odd especially in North America, why those two planets never seem to merge. It's, uh, yeah. You had to be one or the other. You couldn't be both. Yeah, unless you're Nine Inch Nails or Depeche Mode. Mm-hmm. Somehow they slip to the rock cracks, even though they're quite electronic. Yeah. Did you feel that? I mean, you mentioned early, early on Donna Summer on one side with your dad and the Kinks on the other side Ramones, with, with yeah. Ramones. Um, it, it didn't seem like an, an issue for you at all. No, it didn't. And, then, uh, you know, at 12, I was, uh, you know, disco dancing and, and rocking out. And, um, you know, I, I visited New York a lot in, in the, you know, well, I have ha- half my family there. So I was there, you know, twice a year and early hip hop started then too. And I never found a problem with liking all of it. Well, I think we need another song, Peaches. All right. I would like to try it. I don't know if it'll, this might be, um, this is only a test. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Feel Crane from Peaches and Sweet Machine. Thank you so much, Peaches and Sweet Machine, for coming into Sound Opinions. Oh, we had a fantastic morning. To listen to Peaches' entire live performance, visit soundopinions.org. And to make a comment on the air, leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album from actress and singer Charlotte Gainsbourg. And then Greg drops a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a duet by Charlotte Gainsbourg and Beck from her new album, IRM, a song called Heaven Can Wait. Greg, before we introduce Charlotte, I think we have to talk a little bit about her dad, Serge Gainsbourg, unique artist in the late 60s in France who mixed jazz, pop, and world beat with this uh, sing-song delivery of his that made every single line sound like the lutist double entendre. (laughs) Forgotten for a long time, but rediscovered in the 90s by a lot of hip rockers, Stereolab, Luna, and notably Beck. His influence has only grown ever larger over the last decade, and now you have Beck producing the third album by Charlotte Gainsbourg, his daughter. She's been making music since age 13, notoriously a single with her dad, Lemon Incest, (laughs) and then a much-hyped album a couple of years ago, 555, that saw her collaborating with Nigel Godrich and Ayer and Jarvis Cocker. She's mainly known, though, as an actress. That wonderful Michelle Gondry psychedelic film, The Science of Sleep, and the recent and very controversial Antichrist, Now comes album number three with Beck. She had an accident water skiing a few years ago, took a serious tumble, and wound up with a brain injury that only manifested itself a couple of months later. This album is all about that experience. The title IRM is the French acronym for an MRI. Let's play a song from this album, and we'll come back and rate it on our Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is the title track IRM by Charlotte Gainsbourg with producer Beck on Sound Opinions. the title track from the third studio album from Charlotte Gainsbourg. You can hear the sound of that magnetic resonance imaging machine being reproduced in the background, and uh, she spent a lot of time in there, in that womb-like atmosphere. Yeah. And when you talked earlier, Jim, about the experiences that shaped this album, notably that uh, skiing accident and her recovery from this near-death experience, you're thinking, oh, is this going to be an album about where she sort of pities herself and talks about 
you know, I survived this tragic accident. Um, you know, it could have been that. She does none of that on this record. It's more about the psychedelic experience of being mm-hmm. in that machine. You're not quite yourself, and then you're in this in this kind of weird environment and reproducing that experience. What was that like? Clearly, the influence of Beck is there. He produced the album. He composed the music. He co-wrote the lyrics with her, and he pushes her into much more expansive terrain than she's ever gone before. You know, you can only take those wispy bilingual vocals so far. I mean, it's a very <laughs> pleasant sound, but after a while, it can get a little sleepy. And frankly, 555 ended up in that kind of sleepy area for me. But this record is much more aggressive rhythmically. There's a, you know, distorted bass lines. There's some T-Rex grooves in here. There's some tribal drumming. And she stretches with it, you know, pushes her into vocal areas that she's not gone before, and at the same time maintaining her cool, that French cool all along, as if to suggest that, you know, after all she's been through, nothing is going to make her lose that cool. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. It's a fascinating record, and you don't even have to know any of that backstory to be drawn in by it. She does kind of include elements of her dad, the kind of provocateur, and her mom, the British actress Jane Birkin, who was his main muse and often duet partner. He also did some duets with Bridget Bardot. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's kind of got parts of both of them, and at the same time, she remains her own woman. You know, you can't mistake her for anybody else. I think the mistake on 555, her last album, was that all these producers were too enamored of her. They were like, yeah. smitten with her. I think Beck, as much as he, he clearly loves this woman and her dad and the whole uh, milieu, was challenging her to, like, how can you reproduce this horrifying experience? So on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, I gotta say, it's a really enthusiastic buy it for me. Yeah, I doubled that, Jim. I'll buy it for me as well. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Ah, that intro music means it's time for the Desert Island Jukebox. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to pop a quarter in the machine and play a song we can't live without. Greg, it's your turn. Thank you, Jim. You know, people may wonder, how do we pick these DIJs? You know, uh, we, we sort of pluck them out of the air sometimes. Often it's inspired by something we said on the show or an artist who's been in the studio with us and inspired some other selection. In this case, I've been reminiscing with a lot of people in the last few weeks about our history with Wax Tracks Records here in Chicago. The reason for that was the death of the co-founder of that label and a record store, Danny Flesher, at the age of 58, the last remaining voice of that empire, as it was in, in the uh, 80s and 90s in Chicago. Danny and his partner, Jim Nash, founded the label in the late 70s when they moved to Chicago from Denver. Uh, Nash died in 1995, effectively ending the label. But Flesher was his right-hand man in so many ways in that label. When you wanted to buy a cool record, Wax Tracks was the store you went to in Chicago. And the the label itself was the genesis of that industrial disco, industrial rock sound that later became quite popular with Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. The DIJ I play is going to be connecting all of these influences. The centerpiece of the Wax Tracks label was Al Jorgensen and his band Ministry. Out of Ministry came numerous side projects, Revco, Lard, Palehead, and the record I'm going to play next, 1000 Homo DJs. The way Jorgensen would record is he would lock himself inside track studios in Chicago in this really rotten part of town and inside 
he was making his extremely cutting-edge music with his various side projects. I gotta say, it was less scary outside that studio <laughs> than it was inside when Al was there. Once you got into Al's grip, uh, you often didn't come out the same person you were when you went in. One of those nights, they went off on a cover of Black Sabbath Supernaut. Trent Reznor happened to be in the studio at the time. Bill Rieflin, future drummer of R.E.M., happened to be in the studio at the time, and Jorgensen was going nuts on all sorts of instruments and equipment and abusing the mixing board. Here is a song that later surfaced from that recording session, 1,000 homo DJs doing Black Sabbath Supernaut on Sound Opinions. That was 1,000 homo DJs with their version of Black Sabbath's Supernaut, Greg Cott's Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are once again going to don the stethoscopes as the rock doctors, and we're going to do a little couples therapy in time for Valentine's Day. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded Peaches and Sweet Machine for us. The show was produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, our very own Serge Gainsbourg and Bridget Bardot, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, our very own electro-clash provocateur, is Tori Southside Malatia. Sound Opinions, 
everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. I'm calling you. I'm calling you. Can you explain what you want to do? New messages. How was your day? Hey guys, this is Melissa calling from Fishkill, New York. Just wanted to comment on the Kid Sister show. First of all, I'm in love with her. Second of all, she has helped me through you guys to, to complete two of my New Year's resolutions. One was to listen to some new and inspiring music, which has been done, thanks to her. And second was to run a 5K. And I've been going to the gym pretty much faithfully every day and running that 3.1 miles listening to his sister. show that uh, it's music to work out to, and I can completely agree with that. So I recommend her for anyone who wants a New Year's, wants to stick to their New Year's resolution of running or working out more. I love your show. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys, for doing the review of the uh, Pixies Doolittle album. It's amazing how much music means to you, and I um, just had a lot of welling up inside of emotion. That album meant so much to me. I think I listened to it constantly for an entire summer, only taping my car. Anyway, thank you very much. Corby from Pittsburgh, North Carolina, and I just listened to your very excellent show with Black Francis. The part where he was talking about the gigantic beach ball shaped like a shark. They're like throwing around this big blow-up beach ball in the shape of a shark or something. <laughs> and I was just like, all right, just stop. Just stop. Give me the shark. It reminded me of my 21st birthday, which was the best 21st birthday anyone's ever had. I'll go, t- I'll go head to head with anybody on that one. When I saw... Frank Black and the Catholics play The Cat's Cradle up in Carborough. During the set, there was this guy who just, um, and you've seen him at every show, this one guy who decides that he wants to mosh and throw arms and kick people, you know, especially if you are not feeling it. So he was the one guy who'd gotten in there and wanted to behave like it was your stereotypical hardcore show or whatever. And it was really pissing a lot of people off. He's running into people and knocking them over. And during the song, Frank Black steps away from the microphone and stops playing, points directly at him and says, Hey, you, f***hole, stop it. And the guy just stops dead in his tracks and does not continue. I cheered along with it, you know? It was like, this is Frank Black, and he wants the show to be the way he wants it to be. But I also saw him as really standing up for the people who didn't want this jerk ramming into him and kicking him. 
So, um, yeah, love the show. Thank you so much for this episode. And Frank Black, thank you for uh, coming on my favorite show. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.